All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. I have a special guest I'm going to be interviewing, uh, Dr. Dabashish Banerjee, who is a uh, professor um, of, I guess, Indian philosophy, um, ancient Indian philosophy. So uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the fundamentals of the sort of like spiritual cosmology of ancient Indian, uh, the ancient Indian tradition. And then we're going to be talking a little bit about history um, and then maybe some current events. So uh, thank you very much for joining today. And I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. This is actually the first time I've ever really got to talk in depth about uh, philosophy with anybody. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Um, so right now, I know that you're at the uh, California Institute of Integral Studies and you're a professor of Indian philosophy there. And I know that previously you were at the Philosophical Research Society, um, which is an interesting synchronicity because I discovered you uh, not having anything to do with the Philosophical Research Society, but through your interviews with um, Jeffrey Mishlove. You have a series of really good interviews with him that are available on YouTube. And so I, I learned of you through, through that and I was studying uh, what you were teaching about Indian philosophy. And then it just kind of like happened that you were affiliated with the Philosophical Research Society, which was founded by Manley Hall. And Manley Hall is the philosopher who I've spent years and years studying. And I've just this past year beginning to uh, try to teach the philosophy of Manley Hall, uh, both on my YouTube channel and podcast. And I'm also uh, going to be doing some publications. So um, it is an interesting connection there that you went through the Philosophical Research Society. And actually, this past week, I went to Los Angeles to visit some friends, and I got to go there for the first time and um, see the space and tour the library. Uh, when you were working at Philosophical Research Society, were you based out of Los Angeles and were you teaching in that facility? Yes, yes, I was. I was there from... Yeah, so, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say I was there from about, I think, 2006 to 2016. Okay. So it's about 10 years. Um, I worked there in, in the capacity of the dean of academics. Uh, so the president at that time, uh, you know, he, he founded it. Obadiah Harris he founded the university. Uh, it was, it was a, as you know, it, it was a philosophical research society. But he uh, started a online university with it called the University of Philosophical Research. So I um, worked with him to actually um, accredit it. It got accredited. Uh, yes. It got accreditation through the Distance Education Accredit Accrediting Council. And it was a master's school uh, for six years. And in 2016, I left to take my present position um, as a, a kind of a uh, endowed chairholder at the University of uh, the California Institute of Studies. So, and then uh, Obada Harris died, uh, I think in a couple of years. And I think the present president came in at that time. And then um, they made some decision changes and closed down diversity. So th that university is no more. Uh, but that's that's what I was doing there. Yes. I'd like to um, go a little bit into your backstory. I was looking at your uh, your sort of history and I saw that you 
uh, you went, you did your undergrad work in India, is that correct? And then came over here for your master's and then That's have you right. stayed in America ever since? Yeah, stayed in America ever since, since 1985. And, and as we were setting up this interview, you were saying that you were just in India. Uh, do you still have professional contacts in India? Do you teach in India or have, what's your relationship with uh, your homeland? Yeah, I, I have family there, but I also have professional contacts there. I teach there uh, off and on. And uh, I am a co-founder of a, a organization there, a kind of a society. It's uh, called the Indian Post-Humanism Network. So that's one of my interests, post-humanism. We can get into that at, at some point. Sure. But I, for me, post-humanism is contemporary philosophical sort of movement. And I, for me, my ideas of spirituality converge with this idea of post-humanism. Does this thinking about post-humanism come from your work with Sri Aurobindo? Because it seems like he had similar concepts about uh, new potentials, uh, sort of new stages of evolution uh, for mankind. Is the post-humanism right. concept related to that? It is related to that. Yes, it is related to that. It's also related to our contemporary understanding of the human as becoming a kind of a fuzzy identity. And what is the human is gradually becoming a question mark. And uh, we have choices in where we want to go uh, if we want to uh, define ourselves as something uh, looking forward, looking into the future. Yeah. Um, at what point in your in your life did you begin to become interested in philosophy and mysticism and um, the sort of history of the yoga philosophy and Vedanta philosophy? Where did that come from for you? Yeah, Alexander, I was, uh, you know, in engineering school. I found myself in engineering school in India because uh, it's sort of not really uh, something I really wanted, but something I got herded into because people do what others do. Right. And, you know, your life choices are often determined by other kinds of interests, you know, that you're not really conscious of. So once in engineering school, I had a crisis uh, of uh, not knowing what I wanted to do in life. And that uh, brought a lot of questions. And uh, in trying to address those questions, I found myself uh, deepening my inquiry into philosophy and into spirituality. And that's how it all began. Now, was, was Sri Aurobindo, because um, I have your book right here on, on him, um, is he someone that you found later in life or was he one of the early inspirations for you? He was an early inspiration, not, not the first, but an early inspiration. He came, uh, he, he's the one whose answers started making sense to me because he was a modern and he had perceptions on our problems of our times. Yeah. So uh, they started making sense to me and I became uh, you know, interested in studying him and even following him, yeah. Uh, around the same era that he came, which was sort of the eight, teachings. 19th century, he was, I think, a little bit after, but around the same period as Sri Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, who came after Sri Ramakrishna. Do you put them, do you relate them together? Do you feel like they, are they celebrated sort of as a trio? Or how, what's the, the legacy of these people 
um, in India at this point? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Alexander. I do put them together, but they're not celebrated as a trio. Uh, Sri Aurobindo saw himself as continuing in the lineage of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. And in an esoteric way, he had direct contacts with both of them. He's written in a number of places that it's Ramakrishna who directly pushed him towards yoga, asked him to do yoga. And though he was dead by that time, I mean, in physical terms, right? right. Um, Vivekananda died in 1902. And uh, Sri Aurobindo had returned to India at that time, but never met Vivekananda. Okay. Uh, Sri Aurobindo had a run in into Vivekananda's spirit in 1908 in the jail when he was incarcerated for a year for anti-colonial activity. And uh, that was a very significant meeting, you know, in which uh, he was shown certain, um, you know, ranges of consciousness that were uh, extremely important for, for his later uh, teaching. What he calls the super mind, you know, I don't know if, you, if you're slightly familiar with his work, but we can discuss it at, at some point. But his post-human vision, actually, uh, he attributes it in a way to Vivekananda. So what has happened, though, in terms of the reception of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda is that Vivekananda himself, during his lifetime, started a monastic order, you know, which, which you are familiar with, you know, the Vedanta centers. In Los Angeles, there's one pretty close to the Philosophical Research Society. I used to go there myself, and we had good contacts with them. But, you know, they've become a more traditional kind of uh, spiritual school. They belong to the Advaita Vedanta kind uh, uh, while uh, Ramakrishna himself uh, didn't really hold on to any specific lineage. He had all kinds of realizations, and he believed in a kind of a convergence of all our realizations. That's the futuristic vision. That's, uh, you know, kind of the same which we are doing. Yeah, they said that Ramakrishna practiced many different uh, sort of spiritual practices and 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 confirmed almost in a sort of like, like modern Pythagoras kind of way. Pythagoras was also someone who was known to have traveled extensively and practiced many different spiritual practices and confirmed, or they both confirmed that the ultimate realization that each offers is the same realization, the same spiritual realization. So, yeah, you know, so that what you just said, Alexander, that's the basis of what is called perennialism. And of course, there are many, many flavors to perennialism. Uh, what so I think that's where uh, some of the problems also come in because Vivekananda, one of the, one of the understandings of perennialism is a kind of, there's a transcendent uh, that you can approach in many ways, but at a certain point, you have to drop them. It's like a multi-stage rocket. You have to drop. And uh, that view is what eventually is on the basis of the order that uh, Vivekananda endorsed. But uh, Ramakrishna's view, it was an interesting paradoxical pluralism. You know, In other words, you can approach from any angle, but you'll come to a certain uh, realization in which the potential for every particular realization is coexistent. You know, so it isn't that you drop everything. It's not like the rivers that lose their names in entering the ocean. That's one image. Mm. Uh, Ramakrishna was saying 
every reveals its name, but knows that it's the same as all the others. And um, so in this tradition or in this lineage, Aurobindo comes in towards the end and he kind of building off their work, he seems to be someone who's very interested in like modern applications to society. Uh, would you say that, that that was his sort of unique contribution is to think of how how these teachings can be modernized into sort of Western civilization? Yeah, that that is certainly one one of the one of the unique contributions because I think it starts with Vivekananda. I think before that, spirituality has been the pursuit of small sects, right? Cults and sects. They become monastic. They exist on the periphery of society. Society goes its own way, but the spiritual seekers are a kind of uh, a, a, a little uh, island to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but from Vivekananda's time onward, they're trying to solve the problems of modern society using spirituality. And they're essentially saying uh, that, you know, society needs to become spiritual. I mean, we need to have spiritualized society. It shouldn't be that people run their egoistic lives, uh, you know, with, with all the problems that we have, we'll just extinct ourselves. Uh, you know, even the spiritual people won't have a chance uh, because we have one world to live in. Right. But if society, uh, you know, kind of changes its, you know, psychological makeup, uh, we have a spiritual society we have the possibility of a, a kind of a different world altogether. You know, I know that, you know, I saw some of your writings and I'm familiar with Manly Hall's views on these things uh, about the earlier civilizations that have attempted this, you know, like the Atlantean civilization, hmm. uh, civilizations that have become extremely advanced, spiritually speaking. But most of them had some problem, you know, there was somewhere... Uh, the ego came in and brought it down, actually. And right. the, the experiment had to start again, so to say. And uh, Sri Aurobindo sort of holds to that view. He also had his own inroads into theosophy, Fenator. So he does believe that we did have other civilizations in the past. And he believes that our civilization, in spite of how materialistic it's become, uh, you know, is, is probably at a point, you know, at a, at, at a kind of a tipping point where we are being called to make that leap, that quantum leap into a spiritual society. It does seem like that is potentially what the outcome of this tumultuous period is, because I, I feel that in a way, everything that's happening in the world is a, um, is a sort of like a test of scientific materialism and, um, and the sort of world that that's built and, you know, I think that a lot of people have the assumption that going back to normal means uh, that is a sort of justification of that worldview. And this is a blip and we're going back to more spiritual or more scientific materialism. But I'm of the mind that these problems are, are, have accumulated in so many different areas that um, that this idea of materialism as a basis of reality is is going to be. Uh, we're all going to be confronted with that in, in a way, and we are being confronted with that. But um, that's kind of a longer. Discussion. Yeah, I, I I agree, uh, Alexander. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, even even to even even a kind of a short, uh, you know, kind of uh, attention to that year, uh, because we are in the middle of it. You know, we are in the middle of this 
pandemic that nobody imagined. Uh, you know, we, we, in, a, in a way, think of it, our times are the times of the kind of triumph of technology. We, we seem to live in a kind of a sort of apotheosized, you know, almost like a kind of theos of technology, right? Um, I mean, we live lives that are omniscient because, you know, I mean, at any time you can contact anybody all over the world. You can get any information you need anywhere in the world. It's a kind of om omni uh, omniscience, you know. Um, you can act remotely in, you know, if you have the power. I mean, if you've got the money, you can punch a button and see somewhere a, a whole state probably blow up. So it's a kind of omnipotence, you know. So we're, we're living in a kind of a, a godlike age of technology. And suddenly what happens, you know, I mean, everything goes wrong. You know, you, you have this pandemic that's taking place. Um, big corporations are folding up. Uh, you know, you have ecological change that's going on. I mean, you can't predict the climate. You've got big cataclysms occurring every day, everywhere. It's what they call a dystopia rather than an, an utopia that science is, is facing today. Yes. So uh, what is the way forward? Now, of course, as you said, most people think it's just a matter of time and, you know, big brother corporation is coming and is going to come and save us, right? Pfizer is going to make the vaccine that will put it all to an end. And in a year's time, we'll be back to business as usual. We won't be back to business as usual. There'll be something else around the horizon. And so then the other side is the kind of doomsday people, right? They're the people who are saying it's the end of the world. Uh, this is, this is we're right on judgment day. Everything is going to collapse. I don't think it's either of the scenarios. Wake up call. It's, mm. it's basically, it's, it's saying you have to build another kind of civilization. And, you know, there's no way out of it. You can't appear. And you can't just keep believing in this illusion. Right. I can't help but think of, of the parallels of, um, of the sort of religious undertones to the way people are treating vaccines. It's as if it's vicarious atonement. Is that the focus isn't on, on a holistic yeah. of health. It's this idea of I can get this thing and it'll, it'll, it'll save me from the tragedy. And, and for me, that's like uh, bringing up these motifs that we've seen in history before. And it, actually, in, Manley Hall has an interesting article where he talks about how uh, reincarnation happens in waves every five or six hundred years. And that we are currently living through a, a lot of us are, are sort of like souls coming through from the from the dark ages. And and I can see uh, some parallels between the, the, that time in Europe uh, and throughout the world five or 600 years ago and what's happening today in terms of people's psychology. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Now I wanted to come back and, and, and ask you another question having to do with uh, Sri Aurobindo and Ramakrishna in particular. They both paired with um, these women who they, who, who, who adopted this persona, but not maybe not just the persona, but the uh, sort of a spiritual archetype that and they were both called the mother. Yeah. What can you tell me about how the mother fits into the sort of spiritual presence of these great teachers? Yeah, so 
Um, th that's actually a very profound question. We can look at it first culturally and then maybe universally. Uh, culturally speaking, uh, you know, particularly from the tantric point of view, the viewpoint of what are known as the tantras in, in India, uh, there is a kind of a divisioning that takes place where uh, the feminine is considered the, the, the shakti or the power. Um, you know, it's, it's really the power of manifestation. So, in fact, the male is considered to be the holder of consciousness, the, the one that uh, experiences and holds a consciousness and the female is the energy that is sort of acting out of that consciousness. So uh, particularly in cases where there is work to be done, which is not just individual, but has to do with a larger uh, manifestation, uh, we often find these pairs, these doubles. Um, and, you know, in the case of Ramakrishna, who had a really strong tantric background, um, he actually... Um, also had you know visions and dreams that the partner that he uh, married that he was that who was his shakti who he called the well, who is known as the holy mother um, was an incarnation of of a, of a divine goddess and it wasn't only that she was so she did her own yoga for it and then he had the power of war of what some schools call shakti path in other words ritually and through yoga he could bring down into her um, she was prepared and she could bring down into her the goddess energy that could actually manifest that uh, that consciousness that he was interested in 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 becoming and manifesting and the same for Sri Aurobindo as you know it's really interesting because the mother uh, Mira Alfasa was a French woman she was also um, essentially a, a kind of an emigre French, in other words, a second generation Egyptian slash Turkish uh, French. And uh, she was deeply uh, involved in some of the Western esoteric traditions, similar to the ones that Manly Hall was drawing from, uh, the Theosophy draws from. Uh, there was, there's a whole bunch of uh, the Hermetic and Kabbalistic traditions uh, that were seeing a revival in Europe uh, at the same time as people like Ramakrishna and Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo were operating in India. And it's really marriage of those two traditions that occurs. Both of them were very conscious of it. And she was extremely prepared uh, to house the powers that, uh, you know, she thought that she would bring into the union. It's interesting. It reminds me in a way of something that I have read, read Manly Hall talk about, which is how if we go back in time to the era of the brood families, which is like the early civilization pattern, uh, the sort of nomadic wandering tribes of the, of the sort of early humanity, uh, in these brood families, there were matriarchies, and the the sort of uh, the the, pre, the priestess, the the um, the goddess, was central in that in that way. Is is the mother um, the holy mother of Ramakrishna and Aurobindo? In in a way, is that a callback or or a sort of archetype from that earlier era coming forth? 
Yeah, you know, that's very interesting also, because uh, I think, I mean, what you're talking about is spoken of in other ways as well. You know, there's the whole idea that we had matriarchal societies with priestess, uh, you know, leaders, uh, all the way up to about 1500 BCE, when the Indo-Europeans came. Now, the, the whole idea about the Aryan invasion, of course, is a little uh, too black and white. Uh, it's not necessarily an invasion. It never was an invasion in India. But we can certainly talk about a, you know, I think Mercia Eliade talks about the sky gods and the earth goddesses, mm -hmm. you know. So beings who uh, were open to what are known as the sky gods, you know, like the whole idea of Zeus and uh, the, 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 the Helios, you know, the, the, the gods of, of the sun. And uh, you had the earth goddesses, the serpent cults, nature cults, and things like that. Um, and there was, uh, it's almost as if there were two different things, but they need not have been two different things. It's also possible that they are a fallout of an earlier union. Uh, right. that, that, that again, when we go back to thinking of things like uh, Atlantis, or even if we look at ancient Egyptian art, you can see that it's already a united, you know, the, 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 the goddess and the gods are already united. Mm -hmm. And in early Vedic civilization, you find the same thing. So even if there was a kind of uh, some amount of uh, division and coming together, um, I think they formed a synthesis and a an union very, very early. This whole man of heaven and earth, you know, the, right. the marriage of the sky gods and the earth goddesses. I think that happened. I mean, they also did, there, there are traditions where they are separated, you know, and that's why you have the Judeo-Christian, the Abrahamic traditions that have so, sort of excised or marginalized the feminine, you know. Right. Uh, you, have, you have internal traditions in India also that are more masculine or that are more feminine, you know. But I think uh, the, the, the ideal is that union uh, that we are talking about. And I think I agree with you that, you know, old ancient matriarchal cults, goddesses, uh, and I mean, priestesses uh, were the leaders of people, the feminine that uh, has the power to lead in a sense. Um, I want to revisit the uh, Aryan concept that you brought up. But before we do that, I'd like to explore a little bit of the fundamentals of the sort of spiritual cosmology that we're talking about. And as far as I understand it, there's God as a unity. And then in creation, the unity becomes a trinity. So we have Brahman, and then we have Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Is that the basic framework that we're working with when we're trying to put together a spiritual cosmology? Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, actually, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva as names uh, are a little late. They don't occur in the Veda or in the Upanishads. They occur oh. in the Puranas. But what you're talking about is definitely true. You know, that, that there is, a, in terms of genesis, you know, cosmogenesis, uh, yeah. you know, how the spiritual universe becomes the cosmos. Uh, definitely, you have this notion of the one, uh, in some traditions, you have the one that becomes the two and then becomes the three. Uh, but certainly there is a trinity that is necessary almost. That's, that's the necessary uh, foundation 
Uh, Sri Aurobindo's work is also, one may say, Trinitarian from that viewpoint. Uh, it's the necessary foundation for a cosmos. And then that opens up into the multitude, into the many. So just to work with these concepts a little bit, it seems to me that Brahman with the N on the end, Brahman is the unmanifest. And then yeah. Brahma is the manifest. So we have the two forms of the spirit, the unmanifest spirit and then spirit in manifestation. Does that align with, with the basic idea? Well, Brahma, actually what you're saying is also true. In the Veda, uh, the Brahma is not actually called Brahma. He's called Brahmanaspati. And the word Brahman actually means the word. It means the Logos in, in the Veda, right? But in the Veda, the Veda is really a sun uh, religion. So you could say the supreme being is the, is the sun god. Uh, but in the Upanishads, what happens is that the word Brahman uh, becomes the name of God in the Upanishads. And Brahman is decentralized. So it is not just the sun, it's everything. You know, everything is Brahman. Brahman is the one being there is that has become everything else. And if it is to become the creator, then it becomes Brahma. Brahma is, has taken on a creative poise. Uh, so when we talk about the three, actually these three, Vishnu is another name for the sun god in the Veda. You know, but the reason he's blue is that means the pervader, it pervades the sky. And when light pervades the sky, the sky looks blue. So that's the reason why he is the pervading one, the one that holds everything together, so to say. That's why he's called the preserver. So I would think of that as the soul. Uh, does it align? Does Vishnu align with the soul, with the idea that the soul is the receptacle of the spirit of the sort of the soul receives the spirit and then and then body or or shiva the the creator of form kind of plays the same role that vishnu does to brahma in terms of shiva receives the soul and because uh, i'm trying to think of shiva being the, if you, if the you think of shiva right? as the as the receiver shiva is considered the destroyer actually because Shiva is the one that uh, breaks up the stasis, you know, and he breaks it up and creates ways for new things to be born, you know. But I, I think even if you take these names, they, they are complex. These, these mythologies that you're talking about are complex because there's different sects that understand it differently. But uh, if you look at the model that you're talking about, which is, which is also very valid, that, that there is an impersonal being that then comes out and becomes personal as a creator. And then there is a soul, which is really an ind a, a, a kind of an individualization. And then there is a, a, like a, a receptacle for the soul in which uh, there is a grounding of that, uh, uh, you know, of that individualization that takes place. Uh, then we're talking about, you know, a transcendental, a universal, and a individual, you know, trinity. That becomes the trinity, the, the, the transcendental, the universal, and the individual. Uh, in each individual, each of us is that, you know. Right. I mean, we can think about it outside us, but each of us is an individual. We are also universal and we are transcendent. So that's the trinity that that I think that you're thinking about that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of way. thinking of spirit, soul, body. And that 
and you have or material so you have spirit and matter as the sort of uh, yin and yang the thesis antithesis and then you have soul as the child of the two that's born from their separation and union yes yes so yes. there's another there's another concept that i've been struggling to put to fit into this picture um that comes from the indian ancient indian uh mythology which is ishvara where does Ishvara fit into this? So the term Ishvara, it literally means Lord. And uh, Ishvara is the aspect. Ishvara, the term occurs in the in the Upanishads, but it becomes really important in the Tantras. It's the the universal, uh, you know, male principle. Just, just like we were talking about the male and the female, the earth gods and the sky gods. So that's the Lord in the sense that uh, everything is moving towards that. That's like the, the, the fountainhead of the of creation. Um, and, you know, the, the whole, whole mythology of the Tantras has to do with how the mother or the Shakti uh, is a surrender to the Lord, you know. So the Lord receives the surrender and empowers uh, the, 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 the empowers nature, you know. So in some schools, they become Purusha and Prakriti. But Purusha and Prakriti, uh, you know, as it is understood later, uh, is too dualistic. One is only a witness and only acts. While Ishwara Shakti... Uh, Ishwara is the Lord. So in other words, Ishwara has power, which is held back. And Shakti is the, is the surrendered power that is then manifesting in the world. So Shakti is the feminine principle. Yeah. Because I wanted to ask you, we talked about one trinity, form of trinity, which is Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. But there's another trinity or, or spirit soul body, but we have another trinity of father, mother, child. And the mother, yeah. I, I guess, is related to the concept of uh -huh. Maya. But is there, is there a formal expression of a father, mother, child concept in ancient Indian tradition? Yeah, there, there again, the child is the soul. The child is considered to be the soul. It's the father element and the mother element that really the, the, the marriage of the two takes place inside us. Esoterically, it takes place in the heart chakra. You know, that's why the geometric symbol of the heart chakra, the two triangles, right? Mm -hmm. That the downward pointing and the upward pointing triangle that make a pentagram, actually a hexagram. So uh, this, uh, this at the center of the hexagram is the birth of the soul. So the soul is born from the marriage of the Ishwara and the Shakti. Okay. Now, if we're no, so these are all abstract. These are personalization of abstract principles. Yeah. And that's all. Right. What all mythology has always been is is personalizing and mythologizing uh, abstract concepts. Um. To bring things now from this abstract level down into the human level, we have the idea of the Manu and the Rishis. Is this something that you're familiar with, the, the incarnation of the Manu and the Rishis as the sort of guiding lights of the, the human evolutionary process? Yeah, so the, the word Manu, it's interesting, right? It's related to man, right? And also in, 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 in India to Manush, Manusha, 
which means man, actually. These are really Indo-European terms. That's why they're so similar. It's, it's mm -hmm. just one family of languages, really. And the Manu is the archetypal human. The Manu is the aspect of God that is, you know, like when, when we say man is made, made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God the man, Manu, right? So Manu is that archetypal being that has the potential of what the human can become during an age. So yeah. there's a Manu of each age. Yes. So if there's seven ages. That's why that age manus. is called the Manvantara. The Manvantara. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's yeah. the, that you holds, holds the, that's the archetype that holds the entire possibility space of what the human of that age can become, you know. And the rishis are the seers. So, you know, when we talk about the seven rishis, for example, these rishis are seers that uh, they're like uh, beings that uh, can uh, prismatically bring divine energy into an idea form. They see it as an idea form. And that becomes the possibility of what will manifest during that age. Do, does, does Aurobindo or Ramakrishna, do they talk about the the rishis is that part of their of, of what they encounter when they go into a mystical state is these teachers coming down or or, or communicating from outside of of the sort of like material world yeah i think it's it's implicit in their work because it's it's already assumed but uh, you know the very interesting thing talking about it is uh, we, we started by talking about Vivekananda and Ramakrishna. And so one of the really profound visions of Ramakrishna, um, he, he you know, talks about uh, going out of the body and then rising up the planes of consciousness. And he act, the way he describes it in his vision, he says he, he came to a gate, which essentially was the dividing line between the world of forms and the one formless being, right? And he says, he crosses the gate. And then he says, he saw seven meditating beings that the one consciousness had become. So it's like the entire consciousness has folded itself or molded itself into these seven meditating beings. These are the seven rishis. And he says that he saw himself in the form of a little child who comes close to one of those beings. And that being opens his meditating eyes and looks at him with profound love. You know, he says, indescribable love. And he looks at that figure and he points with his finger downwards and he sees himself descending and that being nods his head. And he says, this was Vivekananda. And that vision of his is basically his way of saying, that particular occult action is what made Vivekananda descend to take a life and be with me in this life. Wow. So th these are the this is the level at which yeah, they do have these kind of visions, as you said, that's what they're doing. They're actually looking at that level where there is a certain kind of a validation and you know action related to these beings that you're talking about. It's interesting the, the way that um, you were describing this experience of um, uh, of the sort of the one life becoming seven lives and then moving into creation is the is the way that Manley Hall talks about the philosophy of astrology and that the seven planets of ancient astrology represent these 
seven powers of the divine of the one life and and that the one the one life uh when it moves into a creative aspect it 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 steps its oneness down into this these seven levels and then these seven creator beings or creator gods are the ones who are fashioning the universe yeah i would agree with that and so it's really interesting to wonder which of those seven was Vivekananda, if, if we go with Ramakrishna's vision. But of course, we don't know. He didn't specify it. But, you know, there is uh, definitely uh, these, you know, keys that uh, you find in, the, in the, these people. And it also reminds me a little bit of, um, this is someone I'm, I'm less, I have an expertise with, but I've, I've heard Manley Hall use this term before, which is the seven rays. And the idea that, each it's sort of like the colors of the spectrum and each person has a father star or a father ray who is the like we all have all seven but each has each person has a dominant uh sort of spiritual light that they are embodying and it, it, it maybe reminds me of that a little bit yeah sure sure i i the idea of the seven rays is directly vedic i mean the veda talks about the seven rays it sometimes calls them the seven rays. It calls sometimes calls the divine the seven rayed one, the seven rayed one. And then it'll sometimes uh, talk about the seven rivers, uh, you know, the sun that gets lost in the in the cave of darkness. And Indra breaks a hill of darkness with his lightnings, and the seven rivers flow out. So these are the seven rays, which are the rays of the sun. But when they come into the earth, they become fertilizing elements. Then they become the seven rivers. So are these the sun gods versus the earth mother? And, then the, and these seven are the activating principles. And then there's an equivalent seven that receive these seven principles. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So Sri Aurobindo actually talks about three layers. He talks about the seven suns, S-U-N-S, uh, in the heaven world. He talks about a midworld with seven centers. These are seven centers, you know, so seven centers or seven lotuses. He calls them seven lotuses. And then the earth, the universal earth with its seven jewels. Mm. So these are the jewel receptacles, the jeweled receptacles. You know, I mean, Mandy Hall talks about it too. And uh, what's his name? Um, Nicholas Rorick, who is the, you know, one of the great leaders of the Agni Yoga system, talked about the seven jewel centers of the earth. So these uh, the jewels uh, are the earth counterpart of the suns and the lotuses that belong to the water in that sense, you know, right. that is the water of consciousness. So you have these three layers, the earth layer, the water layer, and the solar layer, you know. They have to do with matter, life, and mind, you know. Mm. So each principle and the integral is constituted by the seven, each finding its uh, corresponding, uh, you know, element in the other two to form the bridge. That is the ultimate goal of uh, what we know as the vertical axis, the axis mundi. Right. Building, building the, the, the integral axis. Right. Um, on this subject of sort of astrology, um, I, I haven't gone too deep into it, but I have a few books on Vedic astrology and it's different. It's very different than the Western system. 
do you have any experience or any background in, in, in the sort of basic principles of, of the Eastern astrology, which seems to be lunar based, but also interfaces very much with the, um, what do you call it? The, um, the North celestial pole and the, and the oscillations of the great year around the, um, the constellations that align yeah I, I wish i knew more about it i would i'm very interested in it but i'm not that uh, well versed with it yeah yeah it's a very important part i think you know psychology is clearly wrapped up with this astrology you know that it's very deeply uh, related unfortunately i'm not that uh, well versed in that that aspect well my feeling is that the, the sort of like true astrology is the bridge is the is these Western and Eastern put together. And, th and that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, there's a lot of people today, you can find them on YouTube, a lot of people who write books on astrology. And I feel like th those systems can only be incomplete because if you're not factoring in the Eastern approach, then and, and the yeah. lunar and, and this celestial motion then you can't possibly have the full philosophical understanding of what you're doing that's just my opinion yeah, yeah. i want yeah. to ask you a little bit about theosophy and the the lineage of philosophy in india because india is very related to this the theosophical motion and the theos theosophical motion draws from from India, are you are you a student of of, of theosophy and and what is your sort of how, how does it compare to what the sort of basic ideas of it? How, how does it compare to what you know about the teachings of uh, Vivekananda and Ramakrishna and um, Aurobindo, who are not, as far as I know, they're not really referenced in theosophy. So, do they align in your opinion? Yeah, so I, I'm not a deep student of theosophy, but I do know uh, a, 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 a good deal about theosophy uh, from, I mean, theosophy has had tremendous impact on what we call the new age and all the many different schools of our times and theosophy itself belongs to, as I, as I was mentioning, uh, uh, entire rethinking of Western, um, you know, esoteric, knowledge uh, that took place uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so Madame Blavatsky, um, you know, really received and consolidated, integrated a lot of this knowledge that was then being, uh, you know, generated uh, between the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of truth in it. And I think, you know, the, the beautiful, beautiful thing is that they, integrated the Chaldean and the Vedic. So there's a, a synthesis that takes place. And I think they got nuggets of the kind of truth that there was before the split took place. I mean, I think what we are seeing today in terms of esoteric knowledge is very diluted and even more so due to the modern age and due to the, you know, breakup firstly of religions and then of the, uh, you know, of science and all that, it's really broken up. It's, it's like oh, we've all been blindfolded, but in our age. 
But uh, if, if we look at all the world's traditions, we can definitely see that there are profound similarities between them. And similarities point to um, historical, you know, points of in integrality that have split up over time. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, theosophy and then this Western movement was an attempt to recover some of that integral knowledge. And they tried to do it through a variety of means, through opening by intuition, through experience, through study, through bringing together world traditions and creating a synthesis. And uh, I think there's a lot of profound truth in it. Um, but also, I, I feel we shouldn't look at it as, as too rigid a system. The ancient teaching is so flexible that, you know, you have to, I think one of the things that science has done to us in our age is to make the world static. We are always looking for a single truth. While what uh, the ancients were interested in is how each individual can become the full potential of who they are. That's what the Rishi is. The Rishi, each Rishi is a poet in a sense that has creative power to give the same thing in a new way. So we are also that in a sense, you know, we, we can ultimately create worlds of our own that are the same world. It seems as if these are different, totally different worlds, but we are actually creating universes that are the same universe. We live in it and we actually appreciate each other's universe and live in each other's universe even while we live in it. This is the higher dimensional reality of a plural age. You know, we can't think of it in our present condition, but we can think of it if we are one, you know, we can have perfect uh, freedom and still have uh, total unity. Oh, just continuing on the subject of um, theosophy, one of the main yeah. points of theosophy is the idea of the Mahatmas. And in the West, that concept has been interpreted with a lot of, by a lot of people with a lot of hesitancy. But the idea of the Mahatmas is not, or these sort of like guru type spiritual teachers who communicate through consciousness and mind uh, sort of out of body. That's not abnormal or in the Indian tradition. Is that correct? No, it isn't abnormal. Like, for example, as I was telling you, even Sri Aurobindo saying that Vivekananda came to him in the jail right. and showed him new ranges of consciousness. It's it's in India. If he well, if I say this to a Western person, he'll think I'm cuckoo. But his saying he said it out loud in a in a public speech shortly after he came out of the jail and nobody took it as anything uh, extraordinary. It's very possible. I mean, it's, it's accepted. See, uh, I think uh, what theosophy does, which is new, is to talk about world teachers. You know, while here we are talking about lineages and these, these, this is happening time in India. You have a lineage. You've, you've read the autobiography of a yogi, right? Uh, yoga I, actually haven't, I haven't read that one. And the uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. Yeah, you should read it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay. Because, you know, there he's talking about the lineage and how uh, the so-called dead gurus are all appearing and, in a sense, uh, communicating. Uh, you know, and this is going on all the time. Actually, 
invisibly we are receiving communications from the gurus and rishis all the time. I think uh, one of the things that theosophy does is creating a pantheon of world teachers. Even when they're thinking about beings like Krishna, Christ, Buddha, as forming a pantheon of world teachers, there's a sense of world history, Mm. a sense of a single world that is moving towards a spiritual destiny. This kind of an idea is new. And I think it it's belongs to our times because we are entering a global age. Right. So thinking about it in those terms uh, is a kind of a innovation that uh, uh, theosophy has introduced. But I think the idea is, is not extraordinary at all uh, to, to India. So all the ideas we've been talking about so far, these are these are the fun, some of the fundamental principles of yoga, yogic philosophy in terms of yes, the system of yoga that originated in India was not something that was ever separate from this way of looking at the world, a, a way of perceiving reality and of also worshiping and not just worshiping, but but participate. You're participating in a divine life. Yeah. yeah. In the West, the yoga that we practice is completely detached from these ideas. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about how you look at the way that yoga is treated today in the West as being something that's mostly based on physical exercise and kind of the ideas behind it are very much focused on the individual and how you man, you know, manifest things for yourself, maybe. Have we gotten just completely off the, off the rails in terms of how we're approaching yoga? Yeah, I think, Alexander, uh, if, I mean, to answer your question, firstly, um, growing up in India is also today, I think it's, um, a lot of India is also quite westernized. So it's a mixed experience. You know, on the one hand, you do come across, uh, you know, yogis, uh, temples, that there, there are these kinds of experiences. The knowledge of yoga is much more available. And one isn't surprised by these kinds of things. For example, you know, I mean, the notion of atheism, you know, that people spend a lot of ink and, and kind of, uh, you know, they get into deep arguments about does God exist or does God not exist? This question is not that important to question in India. You don't ask the question, do you believe whether God exists? Nobody believes uh, anything, uh, you know, there. The question is, are you interested in experiencing it or not? You right. know, are you interested in experience? And then there are, you know, even if you go back, there are schools like the Charvaks. They're saying, we are not interested in experiencing it. And they say, that there'll be people that say, okay, you, you can, they're a minority. They, they say, oh, we're happy with our bodily existence. Okay, that's fine. You have a place in society. Somebody else will say, we are only exp- interested in knowing God through love. That's fine. We are interested in becoming God. That's fine. But nobody's going to say, do you believe that God exists? It's a question that has no meaning. But you see, what has happened over time is that due to westernization, these kind of questions have also entered the field. 
So there are people to whom it's become confused. This entire thing has become confused. But it's not so difficult to get out of it. You know, you find, uh, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, as I said, a mixed atmosphere in, in this sense. But with, when you come to the West, it's quite different. You know, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. I can tell you when I first came way back, I, as I told you, I came to America in 1985. That was the first time I got out of India, actually. I, I hadn't been out of India to particularly to the West. Uh, I think the flight, my, you know, my father was staying in the Middle East at that time. He, so we went to Oman and I felt no difference. And the people of Oman and the atmosphere, the land and everything like that, it was just like, uh, like India in a sense. And then I took a flight to London and I got off in London and I suddenly looking around felt that something had changed. And what had changed, the more I thought about it, I realized what had changed was the sense of who I was, the sense of the distance between individuals. The third dimension had suddenly become real. You know, that was not the case uh, earlier. So uh, I think individualization and the making of oneself the center of the world is much stronger here uh, yeah. in the West. And that kind of breaks, uh, you know, there's a certain level of unity uh, that gets broken as a result. That kind of difference, you know, I mean, it's it's a difference of, it's uh, so you're talking about yoga. Uh, I think when, when the idea of yoga comes in here, um, it's necessarily going to be an individual thing. Uh, and at first, First, it'll really be uh, the kind of thing you're talking about that really supports uh, ego pursuit, you know, kind of fitness and health, which are okay by themselves, but uh, they don't go anywhere. You know, right. they, they just support your own ego existence. Well, just for a few people, it might open the door to wisdom or to becoming something other than who we take ourselves to be. Right. Now, I think I recall from what I've read of Vivekananda, I know Manly Hall said this, I know Carl Jung has said this. Um, yeah. They think it's somewhat dangerous the way to, to be sort of experimenting with these yoga exercises without the sort of philosophy behind it. And in a way, I think of it like the body is an electromagnetic system in the same way that a house is. And you wouldn't tinker with the wiring of a house without knowing what you're doing. Are people tinkering with their, their sort of mind body electromagnetic system in a way by doing the people who are doing like really intense yoga and intense meditation without the guiding sort of context of the ideas that we we're talking about, or even having a teacher who's really informed in this world. Do, do, do you think it's actually could be possibly a negative thing for people to be in the West to be intensely doing yoga, but still occupied by um, ego sort of as a primary consciousness? It can, it can, Alexander. I, I'm familiar with both Carl Jung and uh, Manny Hall's uh, views on this matter. 
And uh, I agree to some extent. I, I think one of the things that both of them were saying, and I know this is also the case with the Rosicrucians. Uh, I've read the Rosicrucian texts. They're saying to some extent that uh, Western people are not really ready for yoga. You know, Jung was saying that. Jung was saying, I feel I have to take other lives to become ready for the kind of spiritual life that's lived in India. Mm. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, I think Manly Hall was also saying to some extent, I think this, the notion of collective unconscious comes into it. You know, that cultures have built a certain kind of cultural knowledge, you know, or, or, or what you might call a kind of a, a, a sort of esoteric cultural matrix. Uh, you were talking about true magnetic matrix. Uh, the, I think cultures have built that, that makes it easier for them to tune into certain forms of uh, self-transcendence or self-transformation. Uh, but also, I think, uh, again, we're talking about the modern age and also talking about what we are saying, theosophy creating a pantheon of world teachers. I think today uh, it's much more flexible. I think we have access, uh, occult access to uh, world cultures. And, and for those who are sincere, they can tap into these. I think they can tap into these. Uh, which would have been much more difficult, even a hundred years back, even during, uh, even 60 years back, during the time of uh, people like Jung and, uh, and, and Manly Hall. I think things have changed, uh, but at the same time, I think the danger is not past, where you could do what you're saying. You could, you could basically tinker with uh, a, a kind of a wrong uh, wiring uh, and, and, and burn yourself out. The one time I in my life that I was uh, sort of fasting and um, going doing yoga every day and meditating every day and, and, and sort of an imitation of the Indian practices, I Indian yoga practices, I opened up something within me and I could not control the way I felt like I was a I was an emotional mess. And it was the only time in my life that I really felt that way. And I can't help but what. And it wasn't until later on that I read Carl Jung and, and Manly Hall and Vivekananda talking about it. And, and I and I can't help but think that the fact that I'm I was playing around with my system without really know what I was doing, knowing what I was doing factored into that equation. Yeah, it's but, you know, Alexander, this can happen in India as well. I mean, uh, if you read, uh, there's a famous writer called Gopi Krishna. Right. If you if you locate his book, Gopi Krishna's book, I'm forgetting the name, but it's on Tantra, it was uh, from Kashmir. And he, uh, you know, without any teacher, he tried uh, opening up some of these uh, exercises and uh, had a Kundalini uh, experience uh, that really messed him up for, for quite some time. He didn't know what to do. He went crazy. And uh, then he wrote to a number of people. That's where the difference is. You know, I think he, there, were, there are people you can approach. So he wrote to a number of people and he uh, got help. Uh, in fact, Sri Aurobindo was one of them. And that, that letter that he wrote to Sri Aurobindo has been published. Um, Sri Aurobindo, tell, he, he's looking for a teacher. He said, like you were saying, I mean, he's saying that maybe I should not have done this without a teacher. I needed a teacher to 
help uh, guide me uh, into these practices. And she, she, then he asked Sri Aurobindo whether he'd be his teacher. And he said that, uh, I don't think your, your path is not the same as mine, but I can help you. And uh, so what help he gave him in an occult way stabilized him. He became okay after that. And then he had his own experiences. He didn't find another teacher, but he did uh, continue to ex explore and do his own yoga without a teacher. But everything was fine after that. Uh, but, the, but the beginning was, was like what you're saying. I know somebody else over here. You, you talked about Jeffrey Mishler, you know. In fact, uh, I was going to say that, you know, Jeffrey and I were both at the University of Philosophical Research. Oh, and Jeffrey is also very well, very knowledgeable about Manly Hall. Yeah. So, uh, you know, anyway, I, what I wanted to say is that Jeffrey's wife, who was also a faculty there, uh, at University of Philosophical Research, a great, she's a wonderful psychologist herself, Janelle Barlow. Uh, she had a Kundalini experience that whacked her out and she didn't know what to do about it. And then again, by chance, I think, you know, the bottom line, what I'm saying is if you are sincere, you will find what you're looking for. Even through coincidences, even through miracles, you'll find it because she did get directed to an Indian teacher in somewhere else in some other state who had started a small ashram and uh, she went there and he helped her and she became gay. So, you know, it's possible. I think in our age where there's so much mixing that's going on, uh, that electromagnetic matrix that you're talking about has also become richer, right. but the danger has not gone away. I think the danger you're talking about is very real. Right. Um, you mentioned a couple of times Krishna, and this is a side note. How does Krishna fit into this picture that we were talking about earlier? Was he, in a, was he, in a, was he an actual person that is said to have one day lived in, in sort of maybe like a bodhisattva type, or is he more of a, one of these like gods that personify a principle? So the... The jury is out on that uh, in terms of, you know, what, what people talk about, etc. I believe he lived. Uh, he, he was an actual person. Uh, and the whole idea of the, of the incarnation in India, you know, avatar, the idea of the avatar begins with Krishna. I know, you know, there's the notion of the 10 avatars, etc. But the idea of the 10 avatars came later. Krishna was the only avatar to start uh, you know, and then texts were written that talk about 10 avatars and things like that. You're talking about the but 10 avatars the, of Vishnu? The notion of God incarnate, Vishnu, yeah, of, of which in that pantheon, uh, Krishna is the eighth, right? Uh, actually, the ninth, sorry. Krishna is the ninth in that pantheon. Uh, but, uh, you know, that pantheon came later. He, he was the only, the whole idea of an incarnate, uh, human, uh, God in human form in India uh, starts with Krishna. So when we talk about ancient Indian philosophy, are we talking about actually there were different traditions and different teachers, and then now they're sort of being brought together, and, and that's, that's why right. there's some controversy or confusion about where each person fits into the scheme? Yes, absolutely. 
So, you know, when we're talking about the Veda, the Veda is very ancient, but then the Upanishads and then there are other teachers like Buddha. Buddha is not a Vedic teacher. He's drawing from the Veda. He's drawing from the Upanishads, but he's differentiating himself from Veda and Upanishads for some reasons. He's critical about the social system, right? But he's not critical about the gnosis, the knowledge. So we find that uh, different approaches develop and these different approaches uh, create their own mythologies, their own symbol systems. And that point I was making that, you know, the, there, is a, there is an acceptance of that, the acceptance of the fact that there doesn't need to be one system. Um, the system you make, the mythology you make is related to what you want to find. Uh, you know, so there are many different uh, sectarian understandings of the same thing. You know, when there's a there's a person who went to Sri Aurobindo and said, "I want to become your disciple of yoga," and Sri Aurobindo, what what I'm telling you is what any yogi would do. You know, I mean, this in the, in uh, any good yogi, if you went to him and said, "I want to become your student," they they'd ask you a question, and their question is, "What do you want from yoga?" You know, what is it that you're looking for from yoga? And so the other person was a little, you know, surprised and didn't know what to answer. They says, are you looking for peace? Are you looking for, you know, love? Are you looking for power? Uh, you know, looking for a combination of these things? Uh, are you looking for knowledge? Uh, and anyone answer to this is going to put you in a different path of, of, of practice. Yeah, it's sort of like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy the way you approach the topic. Yes. Yes. Um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about history. Um, and on this occasion, I just want to give a quick plug. I'm going to be having this uh, study guide come out. Uh, this is the first in a series of study guides about the teachings of Manly Hall. And uh, in this one, it's called Atlantis and the Origins of Civilization. But it really talks about the idea of the seven ages, which we touched a little bit on earlier, the seven cycles. And in this, now this is something that is taught in theosophy and in Manly Hall's work. And I would say in esoteric sort of literature in general, you have this idea of seven ages and it, that's where Atlantis comes in. Atlantis was a previous age or a previous cycle. And yeah. it's interesting that and this is something that Manley Hall talks a lot about, is that the, the mythology of various cultures throughout the world that existed independent of each other all have traditions of the deluge, um, which is sort of like in Christianity, the, 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 the Noah flood myth. But that version is, can be found in different traditions. Is there a tradition in India of a deluge? Yeah, yeah, there, there is, there is. Uh, and it's related to the Manu, right? The first avatar, for example. And there's slightly different tellings, just like all the other things that I'm telling you about, that there's slightly different variant tellings in different texts. So in, in one of those texts, uh, it's the fish avatar, you know? So basically, it's in, in this text, it, there'll be Manu, right? He's the kind of uh, uh, ancestor of the human race at that time. And he uh, comes across this little fish who talks, you know, I mean, he's taking a bath and this fish suddenly jumps out and seems to talk. And he, it's, it says to him, take me out of here and take me to, uh, take me home. So he puts it in a little bowl and takes it home. 
Next morning, it's filled the bowl. And he says, well, put it, put me out in the river. And so he puts it out in the river. And the next day, it's filled the river. I mean, the, the, the pool, right? Next day, it's filled the pool. And so he knows there's something strange going on. He says, who are you? He says, um, I'm God. Come to help you to transition to the next stage. And he says, well, what am I supposed to do? He says, now you can put me in the ocean and uh, there will be a deluge. And the pralaya, when the pralaya happens, um, you know, I will carry you and your wife. And, you know, I think there's, there's no animals and all. It's just uh, the, the humans, right? Uh, the seed of the humans, so to say. But the, the variant story says that, you know, the fish says, I will carry the Veda on my, on, and save that, nothing else. I'll just, I'll just save the Veda which will continue into the new age because there will be a new creation that will rise, but they will have the truth in that form. And this is the first incarnation? So there are different ways of telling it. Italy, the first incarnation, the, the first incarnation. And it's it's a fish. In other words, it's that which rises out of the water. Right. So I, I want to just briefly go over the, the, the idea. This is going to lead into the next topic, uh, which is the Aria, the Arian concept. So the... In theosophy and in Manley Hall's teaching, which is Manley Hall, I think, is a sort of in that lineage of, of theosophy, even though he's not formally a theosophist. But um, the fourth age is called the Atlantean age. And he he gives this scenario where the, the Atlantean age falls because of the a corruption of, a, of, of the priesthood and the misuse of, of sort of esoteric yes. sciences. And that misuse of science causes a reaction within nature uh, that destroys the Atlantean pattern. But that destruction is, is what sets the stage for the next cycle, the fifth age, which is what we're in now. But he yeah. gives this version that there's a, yeah. a migrant band uh, that sort of warned the Atlanteans uh, about their misuse. And, and they sort of leave before the collapse. They leave Atlantis which is in the Atlantic Ocean area, and they traveled to the Himalayan region. And it's within this band that the Manu of the fifth age, which is called the Aryan age, incarnates. And Manly Hall says that this incarnation of the Manu in this Northern Asian region is, the, is, is what births the Vedas, the original Vedas. Does this fit in? conceptually with where you are in terms of the origins of the Vedas and the sort of origins of the modern age, the modern cycle? So, uh, you know, I think, I mean, so we can look at it in two different ways, right? One is esoterically and the other is archaeologically or historically, right? Uh, so archaeologically and historically, we know that the Veda was written in the Indian region, you know? So, so, uh, you know, it, it, there, there's no nothing in this story that goes counter to that. So even those who talk about uh, Indo-European, uh, you know, first they used to talk Aryan invasion that I was telling you about. Now nobody believes there was an Aryan invasion. Uh, they, they talk about an Aryan uh, Indo-European immigration. In other words, Indo-European people migrated into India at some point. But didn't write the Veda. I mean, they, they, they didn't come with the Veda. Uh, the Veda was written in the Indian, in the, in the Himalayan regions, 
you know, whoever it was wrote the as a group or as leaders, um, rishis uh, in the Himalayan regions, because all, all the geography there is about that region, you know. So from that point of view, that, that, that would be the case. From the esoteric point of view, um, it's very possible. I, I don't find any, uh, any contradiction in that idea. I don't necessarily know, or I, I don't find it necessary to believe it, you know, but I, I can very well accept that uh, something like that could have happened, that there was another age, an earlier age, from which people came um, and uh, you know seeded this knowledge in the Himalayan region. It's it's very possible. Um, the one part that uh, I find difficult has to do with the so-called out of India theory. The out of theory is says that the Indo-Europeans went out of India, and that's the origin of the language similarity. That is. Why is Greek, Latin, uh, the modern Latin languages, uh, even English for that matter, Arabian, Persian, so similar sounding to the Indian languages? Why is there a family resemblance? So the out-of-India theory for the Indo-European, which is sometimes called the out-of-India Aryan theory, um, you know, the evidence for it is is not that strong, uh, but uh, the 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 creation of the Veda in the in the Himalayan homeland, you know, by people who were new, who did not really belong to that place, that came there uh, from somewhere. That is very possible. I, I believe that that's very plausible. And let's talk about the, the root word Aryan. Now, Manly Hall says that implies or that translates to the, the, the noble, but it's an ancient Sanskrit word, right? And the heritage of this is thousands of years old. Yeah. And overall, he, he's, he's implying that our current age is called the Aryan age, that the pattern of modern psychology and even physiology is something that originates from this region. And uh, so it's sort of like the world was populated with sort of Atlantean humans. And then we have the birth of what is today the modern human coming out of this region, but it's called the Aria. What do you know about the, the, that root word? Because that, that is one that we're all taught comes from the Nazis, but the, same with the, yeah, yeah. With the swastika. It doesn't originate with this group. They tried to repurpose it. But what is the way that you think about, uh, you know, the twentieth or the ninth? Yeah, the twentieth century version of the Aryan concept, which is this European uh, German creation about a, a sort of Nordic race, versus this yeah. Arya being something that originates in India, um, and not at all having to do with a Nordic sort of concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question, Alexander. So the word Arya is a Sanskrit word. You're right. It actually occurs in the Veda. And uh, what does it mean? I mean, the, the word Arya is meaning noble. It, it's true. It becomes the word, the word starts meaning noble slightly down the line. Okay. Uh, by the time of the Buddha, which is fifth century BC, uh, that's what it means. It means noble person. That's what Arya means. Uh, originally, I think that that connotation of always there, 
It's always there. But in, in its root sense, the word Arya means, it means straight. And it has to do with, so Arya, it's actually even you know, etymologically related to the word right, to be right, you know. So uh, the word Arya uh, has to do with uh, being straight. And this direction, the, the direction of straight is related to what I was just discussing about the vertical axis. The Arya is the one who stands straight, is vertical, has a directed movement towards the divine. Mm -hmm. Now, this directed movement towards the divine also has power connotations. In other words, it, 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 it takes the shortest route out of the darkness. It destroys the darkness to get to the light. You know, so this is why the Aryan in that sense is a warrior as well. You know, the notion of Aryan as a warrior, a warrior for the light, mm -hmm. uh, the notion of Aryan as somebody who stands straight, uh, who moves towards the divine. Uh, these also become the qualities of the noble person. And that's how the translation of Arya into noble takes place over time. And in society, the noble people are called Arya. But it has a spiritual meaning to start with. That's the spiritual meaning. The spiritual meaning is those who are, whose lives are aimed at becoming divine, who have a straight path to the divine. In fact, you know, the word arrow, the word arrow is related to the word Arya. Oh. The arrow is, is something you direct in a straight target. That's what the Arya is. Is the is the is the word Iran as in the country Iran? Is that also from that lineage? It is from that lineage. It so we're not is from that lineage. We're not talking about uh, that's how that, they got. Yeah, we're, I'm just saying we're not we're not talking about something that has to do with one ethnicity. We're talking about something that is transcendent of ethnicity and has to do with your sort of uh, spiritual absolutely. constitution. Absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, spiritual, exactly. It's, it has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has to do with spiritual quality. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that the, the way that we're introduced to the concept is the, yeah, the exact opposite shame. of what the intention was. Yeah. But that's probably true with a lot of things. Yeah. So when Sri Aurobindo, when the, when the entire nationalist movement was taking place and Sri Aurobindo was writing his, all his works, uh, he wrote them in a journal that he called Arya. Now, this was long before the Second World War. This was right. during the First World War. So, I mean, that connotation by which we know it now did not exist at all at that point. Right. Um, but he explains it in the very first uh, volume of that uh, journal. He explains the meaning of the word Arya and its, its roots. And that's exactly what I was telling you. Okay. And while we're on the topic, let's just talk about the swastika briefly. Yeah. What was the original intent of this symbol? It was, it's a solar symbol. It's like an engine, you know, it's like a wind, wind vane, right? If the wind hits one uh, angle, the whole thing starts turning. And this turning is in a clockwise direction. So the swastika literally means uh, suasti. Suasti means suasti. Suasti means to be good, to be well. So the swastika was like an engine for wellness. You know, how can you have 
spiritual health. How do you have spiritual health? You have spiritual health by, you know, in this idea, in, in being in a orbit of the sun, the spiritual sun, right? If you are in the orbit, if, if your movement is in the orbit of the spiritual sun, you are spiritually healthy. This, this mm. is the idea of the swastika. So the swastika is like a wind that actually spins uh, around in a clockwise fashion around the sun and is gives that, you... Is it related to the chakra concept at all? Because the chakra is also described as these vortices, vortices of it's, spiritual it's, energy. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, each chakra is each chakra is is a wheel. It it turns like that, and so, in a sense, it's it's the entire uh, you know kind of motion of the inner being, inner person, uh, you know, uh, that that is related to the sun. That's related to the divine. I think it's interesting that you see it a lot in uh, in Buddhist statues, like on the pineal gland, where that would be. Yes, on their statues. Yes, and, and sort of supporting your your explanation. Yes, yes. Just one little other thing. You know, the Buddha stupa, right? The, the stupa, which is the relic uh, mound of the Buddha. Uh, the stupas are little mounds like that. I mean, why little? Sometimes very large mounds, and uh, they have four gates, which are in the four cardinal directions, not south, east, and west. But the entry to the gate is a channel that comes like that. And there's an axis like this, and then the channel that comes out like that. So the four gates, along with their entryways, form a swastika. And the whole idea is you enter the, the gate, and you find uh, the, the, the stupa, and you walk on it. So the swastika is what is really the engine that leads you into the orbit of the sun. And the, the, the stupa itself is a sun. It's like the sun on earth with the body part of the, of the solar god, right? The, and so when you're going around it, you collect the energy of the sun as you're going around it. That was the idea. That's what makes you healthy. You become full of solar energy, basically. Interesting. And I, I, what you're saying also reminds me of, of how some religious rituals seem to have been uh, where you, almost like the the Kaaba in Mecca, where you, you have this rotation around exactly. the, the sort of spiritual center. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yes. The same thing. They're also rotating in, in an orbit around the solar center. I, um, there's actually two things I want, left I wanted to ask you about. One of them has to do with the sort of tradition of um, Freemasonry. Is there... Normally, when we hear about the tradition of Freemasonry, it goes back to Egypt. Um, and when we think of the great monuments of the ancient world, we think of Egypt and the Americas. I know that there are less known big pyramidal structures found in China. And I've, I think I've heard of one in Hungary or Central Europe. Is there a heritage of lost major sites like that in India that would seem to imply the existence of a of a type of uh, building knowledge that we would associate with the... They haven't Asian. found any. No, they, they haven't found any. The oldest, of course, as you know, is the Indus Valley. Uh, there are uh, old, uh, you know, there's nothing else of that kind in India. You know, the old ones, in you know, say, that go back to about 1500 B.C., uh, are more like dolmens, 
you know, like the dolmens that you find in uh, places like Hungary and all that in France, uh, the standing stones of Stonehenge and places like that. You have structures of that kind, but you don't have those pyramids and, you know, the kind of, you know, advanced uh, building knowledge. Yes, which is an interesting thing because, you know, I mean, say Freemasonry, for example, you know, you have the notion of the triangle with the eye on top, which appears on our Kunsi notes, right? Which is really a Freemason symbol, right? right. That's a free, Mandy Hall makes that point too, right? I'm, that emblem is, is a Vedic emblem. Huh? Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that eye, there, there's a, a very important Vedic uh, hymn about the eye of Vishnu which is like the single eye that is extended across heaven. Wow. And all the gods are looking at it. You know, all the gods are always looking at it. So it's, it's the notion of the sun with the planets. The planets mm. are always looking at the sun. So it's, it's an eye that is spread across heaven and all the gods are looking at it. So this looking at is, is like a triangle. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like a pyramid or a triangle with the eye on top. Right. Um, you know, it kind of makes sense when we're thinking when you're talking about the fact that some parts of the earth have these pyramidal structures, but right. the like the area where the Vedas were born did not. To me, it, it, that almost is a type of uh, kind of interesting support for the idea yeah. that the India and in, in the northern Indian region, especially or the Himalayan region, is perhaps the was not an area where the, the sort of former Atlantean civilization who I associate as being the pyramid builders, the original ones, that that civilization pattern did not stretch into India, but India instead became the stronghold and the originator of the next cycle, which was more nomadic and built on perhaps the yogas as a replacement for these giant temple complexes that the sort of wandering tribes and, and the way that they taught spirituality for this new cycle i i think maybe there's a connection there but i just just su uh, suggesting that it's possible um the last thing i want to no. talk about was um auroville is auroville uh, now i saw your interview with jeffrey mishlove about it what's your relationship with auroville and your experience with it because it's a place that i would love to visit and it seems very fascinating to me but tell me a little bit about it yeah, it was founded by the mother, and it, it is a, a kind of an international spiritual site where people from different cultures go. But uh, the idea is and what we were talking about, a convergent spirituality. People come with their own ideas, but basically they're looking for something which is the one in which, you know, they can find, uh, you know, togetherness. Uh, and also there is, you know, of course, the, the teachings of Sri Aurobindo are there. They can use it. I mean, there's no compulsion that somebody has to follow Sri Aurobindo. But in a way, they're all looking to uh, discover a spiritual life. Just like we began when we began our conversation, how can modernity turn towards a kind of a spiritual society? It's, it's an attempt to um, you know, experiment towards that. 
And I, I think, you know, I mean, so you create a space for that. And I think uh, it's it's really a kind of, a, I mean, it's still in the making, but I think it's it's quite, a, it's at quite an advanced stage in that sense. Talking about uh, architecture, right? It's, it's a great space for architecture. And right in the center, there is that uh, mother's temple called Matri Mandir. Uh, which was not, it's not pyramidal, it's, it's, it's circular, like a womb, right? Mm. Or like a sun that's rising out of the earth. Right. And uh, uh, that, that's a powerful meditation space. It's, it's really got an energy there that pervades the entire city and seems to give it something invisible that uh, people are, you know, receiving all the time. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think I, I saw you mention that it had a sort of... Um... There was a type of energy to it that that facilitates meditation in the center. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely true. I can actually give you an example. So just to you know see how uh, sites develop their own consciousness. Uh, you know, in India, you have people are usually. I don't. Have you been to India, Alexander? I haven't. I would uh, have you to been to India? Okay. Okay. You find it's a very densely populated uh, country, lots of people, and the people are quite noisy. They're they're talking all the time. And so particularly if they go as a group to a, 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 even a religious site, they're usually quite loud. They're talking to each other. Even when they enter the site, they're kind of talking, sometimes quiet. But, uh, you know, I was sitting there with a few people uh, and it was close to Christmas. A large number of people, busload of people had come down to go to that uh, building and they were walking in a line. And my friend who was sitting with me, he said, did you notice something? I said, what? He said, these people, just when they got out of the bus, they were so, so loud. They were talking to each other. But suddenly, as they started walking, they fell silent spontaneously. So there was this pervasive silence, which nobody told them anything about, but which they just picked up spontaneously. So th there are experiences of that kind that you find there. And, and it, in that atmosphere, you receive uh, even guidance. You know, what, what should I do? I've, I've watched some documentary clips of people um, from this is from the early 70s of when the mother was still alive and they they were saying that she had a similar presence about her where she emanated a type of type of I don't know spiritual energy that was tangible and she built I mean she was the one who's responsible for yeah. Orville is that correct yeah I've yeah yeah yes that's correct that's correct is there anywhere in America or, or in the West that you've been to that is anything like that? Is there any places, any kind of um, spiritual centers that you think are interesting? There are any movements that are happening here that are interesting to you? I haven't actually, Alexander, I haven't come across any site as such, but there are there are energy places that, that have uh, a good good places to meditate. It's like, like Sedona, for example, uh, you know, there are spaces where you really feel, uh, you know, the presence of something. But, uh, you know, I mean, 
that kind of thing that you feel there in the in the Auroville space is, is something quite unique. I, I come across that anywhere else. All right. Well, that, that was my last question. Is there any last uh, notes that you'd like to add before we wrap it up? I think we are good. I think uh, it's 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 been a good conversation. And look forward to being in touch with you. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It was a real honor to talk with you. Yeah. And uh, I hope we can be in touch soon. I'd love to send you a copy of this uh, as soon as I get the final version printed off. Sure. And um, sure. yeah, I hope we can be in touch. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care.